Ethereum is a smart contract and decentralized application platform. Gavin Wood is a co-founder and director of development of Ethereum. Gavin, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, Jeff. Nice to be here. Software Engineering Daily has done a few shows about Ethereum, but I'd like to start with your personal explanation of what Ethereum is. Sure. Um, It's always a difficult one to explain, but um, I think... Of course, from the one angle, it's a blockchain. It's um, probably the most general uh, blockchain out there. Um, It uh, involves a a Turing complete um, state transition system, which basically means that the transactions on the chain can invoke code, which can do um, pretty much anything um, like uh, general purpose programming languages. Um, But another way of thinking about Ethereum is as a sort of giant decentralized computer. the code within the computer um, is um, kind of bundled into objects in much the same way as an object-oriented execution environment. Um, but it comes with a number of guarantees, um, things like as- atomicity, um, synchronicity, uh, immutability of the code, and um, provenance of the caller um, within this message-passing object-oriented environment. So. Yeah, I doubt that's very much more clear to, <laughs> to many listeners, but um, in some sense it is. It's a blockchain-based computer. Well, we'll clarify things eventually. Ethereum allows for development of distributed applications, or dApps. What is a distributed application? So, normally when we think of applications, we think of um, specific computers that they run on. Um, especially in terms of the infrastructure, we, we, we typically imagine servers in the background um, coordinating between clients, recording data, archiving it, and serving it as necessary. Um, um, this is where Ethereum and a decentralized app kind of differ. Um, these, these applications are um, essentially entirely client-side, and in much the same way that BitTorrent could be considered entirely client-side, just a whole load of of peer clients talking to each other and sharing things. It's kind of the same way with Ethereum. All of this stuff, all this logic that would normally go on on the back end of a server um, is actually done client-side, and that's where the magic of Ethereum comes in to allow the clients to form consensus as to what's actually going on between them. Can you give an example of a distributed application? Um, sure, probably the, the most famous is Bitcoin, right? So Bitcoin is, is fundamentally a stored account um, balance ledger. And really what, what we're trying to do is just have a database of, of, of balances and allow people to, uh, to run a program which subtracts um, um, from the balance in one, assuming that it's large enough and adds to it in another, um, all under the assumption that it's uh, that this... Uh, is authenticated in some way. So it's a super simple, you know, um, my first sort of database program that you might write when you're 14 or 15 in school. But um, the important thing is that it's decentralized. And that's what makes it different. And how do you get, like, what is the conceptual leap to get from how Bitcoin works to how Ethereum works? So the key difference... Um, really is that Ethereum is programmable. So in much the same way that um, OpenGL programs moved from a fixed function pipeline where we, we deal with you know very particular um, um, functions in the, uh, in, in the means to get from our um, geometry to, um, to a final image on the screen, um, Ethereum is, is, um, is in the same sort of sense um, programmable. So uh, modern OpenGL, of course, uses shader programs, geometry shaders, pixel shaders, um, vertex shaders, in order to get from, from A to B and really allows that um, real breadth of, of, um, of possibilities. Now, Bitcoin in, this, in that way is kind of fixed function. It does one particular thing and it's basically impossible to make it do much else. Um, and Ethereum is, is programmable in the sense that you can actually upload these sort of um, blockchain shader program equivalents and have them uh, execute in this decentralized environment. And to get into the idea of what a what an Ethereum distributed application looks like, like 
Um, I also hear the term smart contract when people talk about Ethereum. Is a smart contract the same thing as a distributed application? So um, I think it makes sense to look at a smart contract as an as an element of a, of, of a decentralized application. So a smart contract, um, really, if we consider Ethereum as this kind of object-oriented execution environment that just happens to be decentralized and global sitting on the internet, um, then we can, we can imagine a smart contract is actually one of these objects that's sitting within this execution environment. Mm. So um, in programming terms, really... Um, when when we hear smart contracts, what we should be thinking of is just an instance of an object that that's just in this sort of um, very peculiar um, object-oriented execution environment. And what are the the properties of if, if we're thinking of of a contract as sort of an object in like an object-oriented sense? What are the properties of a typical contract or of every contract? So. This kind of comes down to yeah, what what what's special about the object-oriented execution environment, um, and the the objects have properties such as the immutability of their code. So, um, in in theory, one can imagine with particular um, sort of um, right permissions, a object would be able to um, alter um, its own co- code in some sense. Um, that can never happen in Ethereum. It's sort of baked into this virtual silicon. Um, that we've that we've coded. Um, another might be um, the um, permanence of the um, of the data portion of the object. So of the fields within the object, um, they're permanent. So normally, when we think of object-oriented execution environments, we think in terms of maybe JavaScript or a program running within um, a C plus plus program running or whatever. And the idea is that when the the program finishes, all the objects are necessarily deleted. And um, if we want them to um, sort of live between program executions, then we really need to um, back them to some um, to some store and um, and and deserialize or whatever when when we run this, the the next instance. Now that's not really the case for Ethereum. With Ethereum, it's sort of notionally always running, and so objects they their 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 store is actually um, is the same thing as their fields. They they just sort of are ongoing in general. Um, other um, interesting uh, things are um, within the uh, the messages that get passed between these objects. We always know the address of the sender, so it's almost like um, we have this um, idea of provenance within the messages. So normally, all we know is that the the, the recipient, because that's the object whose code is now being executed, um, which we can generally um, interpret via the the this or the self. Uh, keyword. Well, um, within the Ethereum objects, when we when these objects receive a message, um, they also get a, another special keyword in addition to this, um, which is uh, MSG Musk or message, and this contains information actually concerning the message that has invoked the current code, and included in this is the notion of a sender, which is an address of another object, which actually initiated um, this code invocation. Hmm. Okay, so in order to do any sort of execution on the Ethereum platform, do do different computers need to be operating in concert or like, I mean, I understand it's a distributed computing environment, but uh, is there capacity for, for a single component of that distribution to, to process a, a request in entirety? Um, in fact... All components, in the sense that all nodes um, that run Ethereum, um, they each process all of the requests, which in sort of blockchain terminology, transactions, um, in their entirety. So um, really it's uh, it's not a case of uh, how do we split it up as much as uh, how do we manage if, if everything has to be, um, if everything has to do everything. If all nodes have to process all transactions. Ah, so what are the difficulties of that? Um, well, scalability is the obvious one. I mean, these um, essentially we um, the sorts of 
um, computational complexity, the sorts of problems that we would normally consider computers able to do, really they they, they can't do on uh, when sort of hamstrung by this uh, by the Ethereum platform, because all nodes on the network have to actually be able to process all of the um, all of the transactions, which mm-hmm. means executing all of the code um, that everybody who wants to use Ethereum um, uh, would like to do. So, so for this, sorry. So what you're saying is it's the equivalent of the distributed database in Bitcoin where everybody, you know, uh, consents upon every single transaction uh, in the financial system. But in Ethereum, it's a computation system that everybody is consenting upon. That's right. Yes. Okay. Interesting. Um, But there is also this notion of of, uh, finance on the Ethereum platform. There's Ether. what what is the importance of ether and and describe describe the economics of the ethereum platform mm-hmm. so um ether is uh provided essentially as an anti spam mechanism so this is to um to prevent the problem of many participants each um uh, attempting to do um, too much computation on the platform um given that all participants of the platform must uh, must execute all computation. Um, so the idea behind it is to have an intrinsic um, uh, an intrinsic sort of uh, virtual token, um, which uh, would move between the um, the validators or the miners of the network, the people who are actually processing all of the information, checking it. Um, uh, executing the computation when necessary and um, contributing to the security of the system through this proof of work mechanism, and it's to pass pass these guys um, some form of value from the people who actually want to use the system, which is to say, the people who want to operate these um, these objects or smart contracts. Um, now, in terms of the um, the economics. Um, it's reasonably similar to to Bitcoin. So, um, for every new block, um, a small amount of this um, these tokens, um, this sort of virtual um, resource ether, uh, is minted. It's sort of created. It's part of the the block creation process. Um, and uh, over time, um, this this amount sort of uh, reduces as a um, as a relative amount to the to the total amount in the system. So it actually stays the same in nominal terms, but um, being as there is actually more a greater sort of um, monetary uh, base, um, it represents a much smaller quantity of the overall amount. So I think what you're getting at is that uh, Ethereum needs to maintain a record of consensus and. Ethereum serves as an economic lever uh, to maintain consensus. Is that correct? Um, so within, so one of the ways that well, the the principal way that Ethereum maintains consensus is through this proof of work uh, notion, which is to say, um, adding a new block, which which is uh, represents in computational terms the commitment of these um, transactions. Adding a new block, actually, there is a cost applied to this. And this is to avoid um, the problems of of, of reduced consensus where multiple participants are each uh, propagating different versions of what they consider is the the consensus, is the, the transactions that have been executed. And the ether comes into it by basically being this um, this value that people are um, committing their resources to 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 get. So the resources in this case are computation. So similar, this proof of work idea is similar to Bitcoin, where there's an algorithm that um, generates a pseudo random number, and one has to find um, the input such that the output um, has uh, rep- is is some particular restricted value in this case that it must be a sufficiently low value. And in order to compensate these guys for 
um, for their efforts in, in sort of solving this cryptographic puzzle, um, they're provided with this, this token, uh, this Ether token. And the Ether token, one, one, so one, one would, you know, hopes at least, uh, would be exchangeable for, um, uh, for some amount of, of real value that will pay these guys electricity to build. Are there any notable differences between the Ether mining system and the Bitcoin mining system? The, I suppose two big ones. The first is that with the Bitcoin mining system, transactions um, uh, must be checked, um, but the execution of them um, is uh, is relatively trivial. And in some sense, because the, the root of the new state does not need to be actually archived into the blockchain, it's not actually necessary to um, to go through the full computation stage, at least potentially. Um, the second um, is that um, uh, with Ethereum, the mining algorithm is somewhat different in that we've tried to engineer it to be as resistant to um, hardware optimizations as possible. So we've essentially taken a GPU. Um, in this case, we, we looked between the two major vendors and um, attempted to make an algorithm which ran reasonably quickly on both and yet wasn't susceptible to becoming substantially faster um, should a, um, a custom uh, piece of hardware be made. And we, re- we rely to a large extent on uh, memory bandwidth. Ah, okay, so this, is, this, this seems useful in um, preventing the type of uh, race that occurs in Bitcoin where you just have these computers that are getting incredibly hot and wasting all this energy in order to, to keep up in terms of mining. If that's correct, um, yeah, that's right. I mean, in Bitcoin, they, uh, you know, they got this problem. Well, some consider it a problem, the ASIC problem, which is um, these are you know custom chips designed purely to do SHA two fifty six hashes and look for low values, um, which is essentially the problem of, of Bitcoin mining. Um, so we end up with warehouses dedicated to um, <laughs> to these ASICs and pumping out vast amounts of heat, um, looking for a completely pointless. Um, piece of uh, computation. So Ethereum's really actually very not very different in its in the fundamental sense. We're still essentially giving people reward for doing useless computation. Um, the, but at least um, it's going to be a, a re- or we hope it will be a reduction of the um, the actual amount of uh, of work of money spent actually making new hardware to do useless computation. Right. So from the standpoint of a developer who wants to build something on the Ethereum platform, how do you get started? Um, So there's a substantial amount of documentation out there linked mainly from the uh, Ethereum website, um, the wikis. Um, The basic steps that one would take would be to, um, to download a client um, we've got a, a few. Um, depends kind of which language you're you're most uh, happy with, which sort of installation style you're most happy with. Um, Python um, uh, Python supporters would, would probably uh, be happiest with a Python the PyEth tools um, set of programs. Um, there's also the Go client and the um, and the C client, uh, which are more or less at feature parity. Um, so you take a client, you'd run it. And this would give you um, a sort of uh, a JSON RPC um, interface with which you could start um, uh, actually using the Ethereum system. Um, on top of that, we have a, uh, a JavaScript um, sort of uh, wrapper for this JSON RPC, which provides, um, when uh, executed within a JavaScript environment, provides a lot of uh, nice stubs to uh, really get, um, uh, get started with creating objects um, in in the Ethereum environment and um, actually executing their methods. Is is there a hello world equivalent for the Ethereum platform? Um, yes, uh, it's actually on the website. So um, just going to the website and it will basically give you a step by step tutorial of getting the client, running it, and uh, making the first contract. And so how how does the development experience compare to a modern web development stack? Like in terms of the types of applications that that you want to write or the development experience? 
Um, there are similarities, um, certainly in terms of the user ex uh, the user interface components, so the very sort of top of the stack. Um, uh, HTML, CSS, one can use um, uh, frameworks like Meteor, which which actually work really nicely with hmm. um, with our with our code. On the uh, sort of more bottom layer of the stack, so when we're thinking, you know, database. Um, uh, especially back-end databases, when we're thinking of uh, technologies like Node, um, really it's, it's, uh, it's completely different. And in many respects, um, it, it, really you've got to kind of think about what it is you're trying to achieve by, with your application in a kind of a different way. It kind of requires a re-examination uh, in many respects because you have to understand that the... Um, there doesn't exist this sort of um, all-powerful authority server sitting sitting there that you have control over, um, where you can stick all of your code, even some heavy lifting code potentially, um, and have have it um, deal out the answers, so to speak. Um, really, it's uh, it requires some sort of um, playing around with uh, with game theory to some degree in order to understand that how um, different peer interactions could have um, could have consequences that you wouldn't normally consider um, when doing um, server-based logic. Can we talk about uh, an application that somebody's built on Ethereum that has uh, really exemplified what the platform can do? Um, sure. So let's uh, let's think about um, the uh, Augur, um uh, project, which is trying to build a um, prediction market um, on Ethereum. So, um, a prediction market is essentially a um, a market that deals rather than in objects or services, but in facts. Um, so the idea is that you make a statement, and we can attach a market to the statement. Um, and for simplicity, we we just say the statement is either sort of true or false. And what it allows us to do is to attach a uh, an economic process um, uh, to the um, determination of validity of a statement. Um, in real terms, what this means is that the people who are able to uh, determine the overall uh, validity, which we assume at some point in the future will be um, uh, available for all for all to know and agree upon, um, those who are able to correctly predict what that um, the validity of a statement will be able to make money and those um, who are incapable of predicting which who actually predict the incorrect answer um, will actually um, lose their money to the to the others and and so why is ethereum a good platform for the prediction market of augur to be built on um there are a number of um reasons uh, that make it um, good, but I suppose um, the uh, the main one is that um, prediction markets are um, not um, are in some parts of the world frowned upon, and Augur have um, in wanting to address uh, markets uh, in parts of the world where. Um, it's difficult to uh, operate prediction markets, have used a decentralized system, Ethereum, in order to um, circumvent um, that possibility since they themselves won't be operating it, but rather um, the essential aspect of the operation will come from the users of the market themselves. Hmm, interesting. Um, so this is, uh, the. are you saying the benefit is to be able to distribute and uh, evade Policymakers who might prevent the the running of the prediction market. So I think it's um, in some senses it distributes the um, the legal responsibility to um, the users rather than a particular operator. Mm, interesting. So is is Augur running uh, successfully? Have there been predictions made on it? Um, I believe they have a. Um, they're currently at the sort of testing stages, so I believe they have. Uh, they certainly have a working design. I think they have a working prototype, um, but it's not yet live. Do you have any idea what the bottlenecks are to them getting it live? 
Um, I think probably. Um, I mean, I I can guess. I think probably it's uh, a case of uh, making sure that their logic doesn't have any flaws. And this doesn't mean you know bugs in the typical sense, but rather sort of game theoretic flaws that would allow a participant to, in some sense, undermine the uh, coherence of the system. Right. Um, and speaking of those types of bugs, ha- has Ethereum had to cope with any of those types of things? Um, the main bugs Ethereum's uh, having to cope with um, and that have sort of come up in the past are um, a sort of niggly consensus issues. So these are the these are the instances where um, multiple implementations um, actually differ over an interpretation of the, the formal specification. So normally this isn't such a huge problem um, for you know most projects since um, uh, there's there's only a single implementation. So unless it sort of disagrees with the specification in a in a way that makes it unusable, um, then it's just a bug fix later on. Um, for us, it's uh, it's a major issue since it would a, a disagreement um, over the formal specification um, actually on a live network uh, would result in a fork, which essentially means different transactions are, are being um, sort of committed to different people's idea of what the actual final state is, and that can lead to double spend attacks. Ah, okay. So let's talk some about the Ethereum scripting language. Um, first of all, why does a system like, Ethe- I mean, this is a naive question, but why does a system like Ethereum need a scripting language, and when? where does the, the scripting occur? The so the scripting language, which um, you know is it's actually a reasonably old name now. When I came aboard, I sort of realised that this wasn't a scripting language in the normal sense of the word, uh, but rather it was a, a specification for a virtual machine. So this is really an instruction set, mm. um, and the Ethereum this 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 instruction set um, comes from the fact that we want to make Ethereum um, general purpose. So it makes sense to have a um, a Turing complete um, set of instructions to allow um, whatever language, uh, high-level language that people want to use to be uh, to be compiled down and actually actually work. Okay, and what was the specification for that language design? Um, the the design, well, the the thing, the goals that we actually wanted um, with the design um, were to provide something which was at once uh, general, um, uh, minimal, and that addressed the, um, the specific problems um, associated with uh, cryptographic operations. Um, so in this, um, in this setting, we, what we see is, for example, we don't have shift operators in our, uh, sorry, shift operations in our, in our language, um, since they can be, um, they can actually be expressed by multiplies and divides. Um, ah, we don't have um, uh, small uh, types of integers, so all of our arithmetic works on the basis of 256 bits, which um, just so happens to be um, the the size of um, of the public no private key in um, ECDSA and the uh, SHA-3 um, uh, hash which we use throughout Ethereum. So this basically we've made, we've designed this virtual chip, um, this virtual machine uh, spec around um, 256 bit words. Okay, and so one of the, uh, the major contrasts between Ethereum and Bitcoin is that Bitcoin's scripting language is not Turing complete, and this was uh, this is a very deliberate decision by the author of Bitcoin, Satoshi Nakamoto. Um, but Ethereum uh, has a way around the the problems of Turing completeness that Satoshi was worried about. Um, can you describe why Satoshi was originally worried about Turing completeness in the Bitcoin scripting language, and how Ethereum fixes that? So, Turing completeness opens up a um, <laughs> a problem, um, which is the um, commonly known as the halting problem. 
So this is the notion that um, one, in order to actually even determine um, whether a program uh, will halt or not, um, requires an unbounded amount of resources. Um, now, what there are a number of ways around this. Um, one of them is to restrict the language, um, which is what Satoshi did with the design of Bitcoin. So the language is, is restricted to um, a very uh, small portion that isn't um, uh, as a whole true and complete. And what this allows us to do is, is, um, is, is actually bound the amount of computation that can be possibly done um, in, a, uh, in a Bitcoin transaction. Um, another way around it um, is to actually just add a limit just hard code a limit onto the amount of computation that can be done and just measure it and when that is up when that uh, when that when that limit is is uh, runs runs through then the computation is finished regardless of what state it's in um now this is essentially what we've done except what we've what we've also done is allow um the um the person who wants to run the computation who's submitting the transaction we allow them to specify their own limit as long as they pay for the resources required by that limit upfront Okay, um, so to clarify, Ethereum does solve the halting problem. <laughs> um, it sidesteps it. It sidesteps it, okay. Very interesting, okay. Um, are there any potential edge cases that could could break the Ethereum network? Um, uh, well, there are... The, the obvious edge cases would be things like consensus flaws, where the virtual machine on one implementation goes one way and on another goes another way. Um, and that would represent probably the, the, the single biggest um, uh, problem. Uh, so this is a fork that you're talking right. about. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. What, what, are the, what are the consequences of a fork and how can a fork occur? So a fork occurs um, generally when there's, um, when there's a bug in one or more implementations. Um, which could include old implementations that, that just never sort of got fixed um, and that other machines were still sort of happy to accept. Um, but generally is simply a case uh, where multiple implementers um, have uh, disagreed on the interpretation or of the specification or worse, um, when the specification itself was legitimately ambiguous. And so they, they're both correct in their different implementations. How does Ethereum coordinate computation across the network? Um, so this comes down to um, uh, sort of multi-stage process. Um, in the first stage, the operations that the participants of the network wish to execute on their, their objects, essentially just a, a method call, um, a bunch of method calls, um, each one cryptographically signed so that um, it, it's very clear, objectively clear that it's valid, um, are collated and they're distributed around the network. Um, so it's, it's very much similar to a peer-to-peer -peer network with just flooding um, uh, the, the, the peer nodes with, with these, um, uh, these operations. We call them transactions. Now, every... Um, every roughly 15 seconds, a, a new block is, is created. Now this block is special in that it, it contains a very difficult to create but easy to prove um, what we call proof of work or, um, or uh, actually it's just a very simple number. It's a 256-bit number um, which when hashed along with the rest of the block provides a sufficiently low value which generally means that you've spent about 15 seconds of the network's total compute power um, uh, determining. Um, and the idea is that these blocks, difficult as they are to produce, um, contain a number of things. One thing is a bundle of these transactions. So a bundle of operations that are cryptographically um, uh, signed so that we have a provenance, right? This allows us to determine what the message sender addresses. Um, and um, the, the, what we call the final state. So this is basically like the if we manage if we use a Merkle tree um, in order to um, collate the entirety of the Ethereum computer's state. So this is the state of all of the objects in its execution environment plus one or two other attributes. Um, if we collate all this, we get a single 256-bit hash. 
And if anything ever changes, this hash will change. Now, a Merkle tree has a few extra interesting points as well, but that's the, that's the key. That's the key thing. And this hash gets included in the block. Now, the block then would get dispersed around the network, and all of the nodes would check the block, make sure that they also agree that doing these transactions resulted in this final state, the the, the hash that's included. And if they do, then they accept the block as being the sort of the the, the best the new state, the, 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 the thing that the computer has moved on to. And then what they do is they, they find, take the transactions that have still yet to be done um, and try and make a new block. And eventually one of them will do and, and the whole process will repeat. What are the most difficult distributed systems challenges that you had to uh, overcome when you were building the Ethereum system? Um, a number, a number. So, possibly the uh, the most difficult um, aspect of this was actually the peer networking portion, um, which um, is, is essentially just trying to make sure that all participants of the network have a roughly fair chance of receiving this new block. So, um, trying to synchronize uh, between the participants. Um, and also in um, when they when they create a new block, if, if assuming that they have solved this cryptographic puzzle and they've, they've actually managed to commit these transactions, um, to actually get it out um, in 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 again a, a roughly fair way, um, so that no other participant, no other node on the network stands a, a fundamentally better chance of um, of receiving the reward. Um, now. It's because we are using such a um, a blunt consensus system. Like we're not trying to partition nodes up to make them any different. Everything is symmetrical. We actually um, circumvent an awful lot of issues um, uh, that would normally um, you'd expect with distributed systems. And rather than that, the the price that we have to pay for this is to be sure that um, in in sort of you know m microeconomic terms. Um, there is um, there is no way that any one participant can sort of gain the system and, and receive a greater reward or in some way have a chance of maybe reorganizing transactions after the fact um, and uh, which would lead to double spend attacks so there's um, yeah there's a lot of um, a lot of thought gone into the network layer to prevent things like um, network partitions happening um, flooding attacks, um, so maybe a, a civil attack where a single attacker actually controls an awful lot of the nodes on the Ethereum network, um, and just generally, yeah, to, pre to prevent any, um, any participant with a reasonable amount of resources um, from um, disadvantaging everyone else. So um, on this show, we talk some about the CAP theorem, which uh, is, you know, uh, implies that you can only pick two between consistency, availability, and partition tolerance. Does does Ethereum fall under any specific uh, constraints of cap? Um, so, in essence, yes. Um, Ethereum is not in the slightest bit <laughs> partition tolerant, um, which is to say if the network were partitioned um, and um, and recombined at some later later date, um, one or the other uh, partition, uh, one of the other participants, the participants of one or the other partition um, would um, potentially have their um, operations reversed. I'd love to hear about the engineering culture of the Ethereum project. Um, I think you're sitting at the Ethereum offices right now. What is the ethos of Ethereum, and, and how does that uh, manifest in the culture? Because it's a very unique product that you're building. Yeah. Um, so uh, sitting in the offices actually <laughs> being a very decentralized uh, organization, sitting in the offices is... Uh, can sometimes be quite a lonely experience, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, by and large, um, our, our ethos is is probably determined partially by um, the fact that people have generally come to the project out of their um, out of their own desire 
Um, so most of the people who are um, part of the project now are um, uh, were in some sense um, interested uh, in a in a personal way um, before uh, before coming before sort of being hired. Um, the ethos kind of reflects that. So there's a lot of um, people work kind of odd hours. Um, people tend to do the 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 parts of the system that they want and this includes even instances where um, people sort of have a, a a nine to five bit of the system that they that they work on and then kind of after hours um, also work on the project but in in maybe some other sense that they um, that they actually find personally very re- rewarding okay so there are people that I've talked to from the Bitcoin community and they have they admittedly have a vested interest in Bitcoin, but at the same time, they express a distrust of Ethereum. Um, and, you know, the, that sense of distrust uh, has been so strong from some of them. I I, I kind of bought into that distrust, and I, I, uh, I investigated it. And um, I actually did an interview with your colleague, Stefan Toile, and I asked him about some of the biggest criticisms um, and, you know, I, he had good answers to everything. Like, um, I didn't feel like, you know, walking away from that interview, I didn't feel like like as much of the skepticism that I had encountered from some of the Bitcoin community was really warranted. So, but, you know, from your, from your point of view, what are the parts of the Bitcoin community uh, that are skeptical of Ethereum? Why are they skeptical? Um, I mean, this is... I guess this comes down to human nature a little, but um, I think I I, I was personally uh, it was an interest in Bitcoin that um, eventually um, sort of took me to Ethereum. Um, it was less of an interest in Bitcoin as a as an economic experiment, less of an interest in it as a currency, but much more in the um, the underlying technology and just wanting to understand how it works. Um, and I think to some degree. Um, there might be a correlation between um, the people who are um, who are sort of interested in, in Bitcoin as a as a as a currency. Um, perhaps they are vested. I, I I don't know if all of them, but I mean maybe to some degree. Um, and the people who are interested in, in Bitcoin, sort of Bitcoin uh, in the, the the portion of the Bitcoin community that are primarily interested in. Bitcoin as a as a piece of technology, and um, I think yeah, when you when you start thinking of Bitcoin as um, as a currency, then you become quite maybe um, uh, you you become naturally uh, worried perhaps about other um, uh, sort of similar currencies, if you like. Um, similar projects sort of um, sort of taking over because that whereas the technology is is just universal um, currencies are very particular and currency it's almost like a zero-sum game right um, whereas technology um, contributions to one project in roughly the same technology space will benefit other projects as long as everything remains open source which at least in our case it does so I think We've kind of got two two groups of people to some degree. We've got the the sort of diehard technologists um, who are not who, for whom the currency really is irrelevant. The project, to a large degree, is irrelevant. It's really just about looking at cool stuff and solving cool problems. Um, and then you've got the other sort of participants who are uh, much more focused around building a a, a single global currency um, and what. These guys perhaps kind of see as a um, as a threat would be some any other kind of potential single global currencies that could take um, uh, take potential or steam away from away from the movement. Um, and so I don't know. Maybe that's where it comes from. Right. But I mean, as I understand, like Ethereum and Bitcoin, it seems like they're contributing to growing the pie and re- rather than like rather than it being a zero sum thing it's it's more of a positive something like you can as i understand you can you know there are synergies between ethereum and bitcoin 
Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, um, and I think I think there are many in the Bitcoin sphere that also agree. Obviously, very few people are sort of <laughs> one or the other. Um, and yeah, I, I think it's 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 a very sensible way of looking at it. I think the entire ecosystem is very young. Um, and um, I think as we go over the next, you know, three, five, ten years, then we'll see, we'll see the the pie grow anyway. But um, nonetheless, I, 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 you know, it's the only way that I can really explain to myself why um, why some people are, are so sort of um, kind of ideological over uh, the idea of there being a single. Um, a single currency and that, that no others really should be. Um... Yeah, I mean, I think maybe one of, yeah, I guess the big, a, a, a somewhat sensible fear that I see from people is like, they're afraid that if the the Bitcoin community or the cryptocurrency community gets too bifurcated or too, too split up between different things, and then they all are spread too thin and then they all fail, it might make the world shell-shocked and just give up on on bitcoin and cryptocurrencies altogether um yeah i mean i i think that that really is a um a much more kind of social um view rather than a technical view yeah because um, yeah, it's a, a fundamental a, technological advance it's not something you can ignore Exactly. I mean, the thing is, nature, technology, society ultimately will favor the more, the more efficient, the, the better working systems. And as long as these guys uh, accept that, you know, the blockchain, whatever, Bitcoin, whatever you want to call it, is a fundamentally a better way of solving problems, or at least a certain set of problems, then, um, then the, there can be no, you know, the cat's out of the bag. There can be no putting it back in. Um, something will succeed. And probably a bunch of things, and so I really don't think there's a major issue in um, in in bifurcation of community or anything. Mm -hmm. Technology is shared; it's all open source. I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I don't really think it's an issue. So we did a show about Bitcoin side chains, um, and side chains are this uh, way to get additional functionality tacked onto the world of Bitcoin. What do you think of Bitcoin side chains? Is this a way that they could potentially just just build like ethereum functionality off of bitcoin um i i can't say i know um a vast amount of the internals of the project um i read the white paper and uh, certainly um with some caveats it, it could be used to extend the um some of the um Problem. Some of the, the the what would we call it? Extend the functionality of Bitcoin to some degree, but um, I think there are still a number of issues to be solved, especially in terms of the um, uh, security um, incentivization. Um, so one of the reasons that Ethereum, because we looked for a little while at like maybe Ethereum could be a blockchain, or maybe there could be a sort of uh, sorry a side chain. Maybe there could be some side chain that sits between Bitcoin and Ethereum, which you know would be pretty cool. Um, but we kind of came to the conclusion that it probably wasn't possible, at least not with any substantial amount of security. Um, the way that, um, at least in the original white paper, sidechain works is by um, determining uh, the validity of a uh, of a transaction to unlock bitcoins um, purely by virtue of nobody um, uh, nobody sort of um, providing a. Um, uh, essentially, it's by the depth of a transaction within the sidechain itself. What this means is that the sidechain security is the is the primary primary mechanism for um, unlocking a Bitcoin on the on the main Bitcoin chain. So, if an attacker actually managed to get control of a side chain for a sufficient period of time, um, perhaps by pouring in a, a large amount of uh, of computation resources or buying off um, the miners because the side chain perhaps doesn't have a large amount of security um, on it itself, then uh, there would be a problem. Um, of the bitcoins that were locked on the main chain actually being unlocked by by this attacker, um, so I, I think it it can solve a class of problems, 
where perhaps a um, a third party wishes to have access to the um, uh, to the transaction wealth of Bitcoin, um, so the liquidity to some degree, um, and is happy to pay for that um, and take on, in some sense, the secure the burden of securing the sidechain, um, but. Um, for a much more sort of um, a general decentralized um, Ethereum-like um, uh, chain, I don't think, and maybe I'll prove me wrong, but I don't think the current um, um, uh, technology is up to it. Hmm. Okay, interesting. That's, that's very helpful. So what are the biggest challenges that you have encountered as director of development at Ethereum? Um. Partly staffing, <laughs> uh, you know, finding uh, finding good people is is difficult, especially within a within a, a, a tight time scale. Uh, like I said, most of the people that we have um, have come to us, um, and you know, it takes a while for, for that. That's a relative trickle, and it takes a while to build up a a substantial um, a base of develop of developers um, in that manner. Um, Aside from that, I mean, obviously there's um, uh, management of um, of, um, of the development um, side, so working out um, prioritizations and uh, getting the right people on the right the right jobs. But um, I guess that's really um, very little uh, to do with Ethereum, and just has more to do with software development in general. Uh, I, I would say that actually it's it's easier than in other projects, um, or is it partly eased? than in other projects because of the um, the fact that most of the people actually to some degree self-organize they understand what the what the mission is and uh, very little work has to be done to um, actually sort of guide people um, in terms of uh, what what part they should be doing next most people understand uh, what the end goal is they have a good idea about the the portion of the project that they're working on and Things tend to work reasonably, um, reasonably well. Okay, well, that sounds like a great place to stop. Um, Gavin Wood, thanks for coming out to Software Engineering Daily, and um, and it's it's really been a pleasure talking to you. I think Ethereum is one of the uh, the coolest projects I've seen, so um, I really look forward to seeing future developments. Cool. Thanks a lot. Nice to be here, Jeff. <laughs>